This is the Thursday Night Podcast, your source for news, analysis, and all things Georgia State sports. Because every day is Thursday. Hello and welcome to episode 114 of the Thursday Night Podcast. My name is Taylor. Today I'm joined by the entire crew, David, Brady, and Jordan. Thank you for joining me. Bit of a dour note to begin today's episode on, but we will be covering uh, the men's basketball suffering the kind of home sweep against Appalachian State and Coastal Carolina, um, and maybe that they can bounce back this week down in the bayou. We will also touch on some assorted football news, take out some listener questions. But first, uh, gentlemen, how are we feeling today? doing good you know that's we're right in the thick of winter and judging by georgia state you know you know the cold has spread to the south (laughs) yeah it is chilly and chilly around the rims of the georgia state sports arena unfortunately um yeah one could definitely say it has been chilly on georgia state's shot selection so speaking of let's go ahead and get right on into recapping what has been a absolute calamity of a week for georgia state men's basketball losing 61 to 60 to appalachian state and 72 68 in overtime to coastal dropping to six and nine on the season and zero and four in the Sun Belt. these losses also make five straight on the bounce the first time that's happened since the 2012 2013 season as far as that appalachian state game app led most of the game on thursday night but the panthers surged late and erased a double digit deficit in the final seven minutes a justin roberts layup with 14 seconds left gave the panthers a 60 to 59 lead but justin forrest hit a turnaround jumper with two hands in his face with a second on the clock to give the mountaineers the victory on saturday it was neck and neck the whole way with the chanticleers as neither team led by more than a single digit score all game regulation finished with the teams nodded at 59 after a jaheem hudson three-pointer at the horn didn't fall and coastal carolina made their shots in overtime and the win was sealed when kane williams turned the ball over in the final 10 seconds with the panthers down two and looking to tie or take the lead saturday's loss was noteworthy for the complete second half and ot turnaround for georgia state on the glass though after the shots had dominated the rebounding margins 31 17 in the first half the panthers were plus 20 the rest of the way spearheaded by elios semis 19 points and 15 rebounds so gentlemen lots and lots to unpack with this uh two game series what are your what are your thoughts that app state game was really funny because as soon as georgia state scored i knew that uh was it forrest who came down and was gonna hit that shot i yeah it, it just it's something totally like, too much time <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't even that honestly like i i just i felt like you know georgia state did a really good job like clawing back and you know roberts hits that shot and it was just like I don't necessarily like this, just the way that these last couple of minutes have been, you know, just so back and forth. But, you know, I, I, I struggle with that App State game because, you know, there's a lot of talent in sports, obviously, but there is some luck involved. And, you know, good teams are able to minimize when luck goes against them. Um, and while I can't necessarily say that this is a good Georgia State team right now because they haven't been playing like it and earned that, I can also sit here and say that they didn't really play that badly. You know, like it it wasn't as bad as it has been. And, you know, like there are things 
and we'll, we'll talk about it, but there are things that you look at this game and you say, okay, you know, you could tell that this team was impacted by some sort of layoff. And, but like there, there are signs to look for that are, you know, encouraging. And that's, that's, that's kind of where I want to start with this because it wasn't, it was a loss and that's all that matters at the end of the day, but I still thought they played well. Well, and yeah, I, I think that the issue is you look at it and go, you see that seven minutes at the end where they came back from down double digits. And it's kind of the same thing we've seen when they almost made the comeback against Mercer, when they almost made the comeback against UCA. And it was a lot of good energy on defense and just fighting hard and making that extra play. And you look at it and go, okay, but if you do that for more parts of the game, you're not going to have to come down from double digits. And they basically did it against App. Like it was the first time they'd really made the comeback in full. They kind of fell short the previous two times, and they did it. They took the lead. Uh, it kind of hung in the balance there uh, for what felt like eight minutes when there was the uh, replay review on the Justin Roberts three that they ended up having to go over to voice of the Panthers Dave Cohen monitor to see. I'm still not really ever sure why they had to do that. But digressing from that, we're in the final minute. Georgia State ended up giving the lead back because, and, and this is where really things could have gone better, I think. I think they had the ball up one. App State had, I think it was 32 seconds on the clock. App State had to foul like three times to even get to the one and one. They hadn't fouled a lot. And so App State was going to have to start playing the foul game, but because they hadn't done it all half, credit to them, I guess, for that, it was putting them in an awkward situation where. Georgia State inbounds the ball. They're going to have to foul. They're going to have to inbound again. And they would have killed it to where the shot clock was going to be dead. And so all they were going to be doing from then on was fouling. You're up one. And so you can at least hit your two free throws once they finally foul enough times to get to the one, one, but the first inbound after the first foul, it's a turnover. Justin Forrest gets it, gets fouled. He hits two free throws. And then, so Really, you weren't in the driving seat, but you were in a comfortable position where if you hit your free throws and didn't make your mistakes, it really didn't have to come down to the end. But, you know, credit to Justin Roberts for making a play after that. You take the lead. And then I really don't think they could have done much more on the game-winning shot for Forrest. LEL came over and helped. Corey had a hand up. There was two hands in his face. He, He had only hit one shot all night. So it's not like you really looked at it as a guy that you were... Like, Adrian Delph was the one who was killing you all game. It wasn't the guy that you looked at it and went, oh, no, he's got the ball. Like, it was someone who had been struggling a lot. But Forrest is one of those guys where his shooting doesn't really matter. He's kind of got one of those, you know, he forgets it as soon as the missed shot bounces off the rim and he's ready for the next one. And he hit that shot with a couple guys in his face. And it really made what had been a good comeback it, it, it turned it, any of the positives into, oh, it was another loss. And you can't really take that away. But yeah, I guess the biggest thing, and I think we kind of saw it against Coastal, is playing like they did down the stretch there a lot more of the game. That's something you can do. Like There isn't anything that says you have to wait until you're down double digits to pull that type of in-your-face defense out of the hat. Yeah, I echo those sentiments. You know, I think... They have struggled sort of on offense with, you know, just not being able to find offense through whole stretches. And, you know, I forgive me uh, crediting gods or whatever. But, you know, last week I 
kind of offline, I posted a thing that was like, oh, you know, Georgia State is really not doing a good job of, you know, they've allowed multiple double digit runs and they're not going on double digit runs to kind of counteract that. And, you know, this weekend, this past weekend was just another example of that. And, you know, it's 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 something that they're fighting. It's something that I'm sure Coach Lanier has mentioned and is trying to work through. But at the end of the day, there are whole rotations for this team that just do not bring you any sort of offense. And, you know, you're going to like we talked coming into the year about the depth on this team and on this roster. And I can honestly say that the depth has not mattered at all. And, you know, I'd. I struggle with that because obviously like, you know, we don't know how much COVID affected individual players. We don't know how like the lack of chemistry with just the uh, irregular practice schedule, you know, that we can only see what happens in the games. We don't know what would have the team would have looked like if not for the COVID pause and things of nature. And, but just the depth has just not been where it has needed to be of late. And, you know, that's definitely something that needs to continue to be worked on as, you know, the season kind of progresses. Yeah. I mean, you haven't necessarily had the, the depth taking advantage of, uh, you know, you haven't been able to take advantage of the depth like maybe you had hoped, but I feel like it kind of just starts at the top, so to say, and sure you want more from your bench, but I mean, you just look at the coastal game and I mean, I'll move on to that. If you're, you're good to move on to the coastal loss on Saturday you just couldn't find any shots and you were taking a lot of threes. You took 28 threes. You only made three of them. And especially in the first half, it felt like guys were really forcing looks and that's never anything that leads to anything productive. Um, Kane Williams, Corey Allen, Justin Roberts were eight of 39 and one of 17 from three collectively. And just, this team isn't going to be built for success, no matter how much better they were at the defensive end. And they were plenty better for a lot of the game against Coastal. If you've got your three senior guards who just aren't making shots, and especially if they're taking unforced ones that are early looks in the shot clock that maybe you're just trying to find your shot, you're pressing a little bit, and maybe that possession would have been an open shot for someone else if you let it play out a little bit more. And... So it's tricky because it all feels like it goes back to just the issue of confidence because they haven't played as much together and they haven't won. You know, they haven't played, they haven't beaten the Division One team since High Point, November twenty first, and that's a long time to go without real success that you can take home. Because the non D one wins, I don't think that they would have spent much time after the game feeling really good about that because there was just such a difference in talent level that it's not like you really, really celebrate those wins, and so. The answer is just that they're going to have to win a game and that might help some of these confidence issues. And it might just take someone going on a stretch of hitting three or four shots in a row and feeling like, yeah, I can do it. But, you know, looking at both these opponents last week, Adrian Delft dropped 29. Not all of the shots he took were even just wide open. There were some good contests and he was just draining them because he's a guy playing with confidence right now. Vince Cole was the same way for Coastal. And when they got open looks in the second half, especially when their offense started getting going, it was a bunch of different guys, but they were all just draining them because they were open looks and they were feeling good about their shot. And I just don't think really anyone of the guards for Georgia State, with maybe the exception of Nelson Phillips, is feeling great about their jump shot. And, you know, that's really important. You're absolutely right. At the end of the day, at one point in overtime, Georgia State was leading the turnover margin 
against Coastal Carolina, 19 to eight. After some struggles early on in the game, Georgia State ended up out-rebounding them 50. You take that. You know, Coastal has good percentages. It was 40 from the floor, 45 from three, and they shot 22 of them. You know what? That happens. At Like, you, you made a great point because Coastal was just hitting shots. That happens. But I also think that Georgia State did a couple of different things better against Coastal than they did against App State and that they have done in this losing streak. It's one. They their rotations were a lot better on defense. I thought there were a lot of contested looks um, that Coastal took that just happened to have gone in. You know, and I like I mentioned the turnovers. They were forcing more turnovers. They were poking balls away. They were just way more defensively active. And you know that starts with Lel. Like he had an amazing game, uh, nineteen points, fifteen rebounds, and it just. It, it feels like it got wasted because they lost, but I like he just completely changed how Georgia State is able to operate defensively. So you have guards being able to kind of rotate, you know, like coming into the game and, you know, the broadcast mentioned you know, Mustafa was going to be that guy for Coastal. And in the first half, he was doing a really good job. You know, he was kind of asserting himself on the low block, you know, passing out or just putting it up for easy looks getting a lot of rebounds. You know, he had eight and eight at the half. It was just like, okay, he's going to do what he did last year. And, you know, a couple of those games against Georgia State. LDL took him out of the game in the second half, completely did. You know, Jaheim Hudson helped as well in the second half. But in the second half, it was much more about just Sosemi using his size and just using his tenaciousness to dominate in the paint you know coastal was not able to get as many looks at the rim when lel was on the court and that's important that's something that has been missing from georgia state all year you know we here at thursday night we love the i you know i'll speak for myself i like Jalen thomas but i don't think that he has been able to bring that same level of defensive intensity that lel has and it's you know that he he's a good rim protector you know he's definitely a rim protector when you know guys want to challenge him but he he's a deeper rim protector than lel is lel will kind of affect your ability to get into the paint and affect passes that are into the paint to make it so passing into the paint isn't as viable an option so you have to resort to jump shooting and you know that's what coastal did and that's you know that's kind of how they won or that's how you know the game was as close as it was yeah, I mean, I'm willing to give a little more credit to Jaheim than, you know, I, Eliel obviously had the great game and the stats showed it, but I've been really impressed with how he's been coming on at that end. And I think it's in no small part to one that he played so many minutes earlier in the year when Eliel wasn't playing, but then also B or two, not to mix up my formats there, that he's playing alongside Eliel now. I think it is really working and it's kind of the partnership we saw with Jalen and Eliel at the end of last year, except it's different because like you say, they're both kind of different defenders than what Jalen offers. And I don't know how much of a trend it makes. I don't know if any kind of move is going to get made, but Jaheim played more minutes than Jalen in both these games this past week, significantly more minutes. He played just over 26 against app. Jalen played 17 and a half. He played almost 31 minutes. And I mean, that's counting overtime, but still he was the guy who was out there in overtime and Jalen played a little over 19 a game. And I just think it was a situation where they were looking at it and seeing they were playing really well together and they were both collectively doing a great job on Mustafa, who is probably the second best big in the conference. Yeah, I think Norchad Omir at Arkansas State is 
pretty in, unimpeachable and just keeps putting up really, really stupid stat lines that you look at and go, how is someone doing this? Um, but Mustafa is also up there and he was doing his thing for the first half, like David said, and then he wasn't at all. And there's one possession I remember specifically in the second half where shot clock up um, on the wrong side for Coastal and they just didn't have any flow going on offense. And it got where it was a shot clock violation because Jaheim was picking up Mustafa outside of the three point line and he just couldn't get the ball anywhere he needed to. And it ended up being a shot clock violation. And it was kind of like, like you say, they were meeting him where he was. They weren't letting him assert where he wanted to be in the paint. And that also helped for them to be in good positions to just clean up on the glass and not let coastal do what is kind of doomed Georgia state. in some of these losses that they've had, where it's been a lot of one and dones, not getting offensive rebounds letting up too many offensive rebounds at the other end. That's something that even in the loss, uh, and you saw it also against App State on Thursday, that the work on the glass, the work inside of the defensive end is really turning the page. And I think it's something you can build on. You just, you need more shooting. You just need more made shots to give you a chance in some of these games because and I wrote a piece about this. Uh, hopefully you read it. If you didn't go read it now on the website right now called what's eating Georgia state and Georgia state has had issues with defense through the year, but in this five game losing, losing streak, they've allowed opponents to only shoot 42% from the floor, which is perfectly manageable to win games when that's all you're allowing. Even if 40% you're allowing from three point in that time isn't great. You were in all of these games, so it wasn't the deciding factor. But when you're shooting just under 35% as a team in that game, in those stretches, and you're shooting 28 of 118 from three or just under 24% from three, you're just not giving yourself a chance. But, you know, I think that you can keep seeing this defense, this defense, the way they've been playing, that can travel. You just need to going to need to pack some shooting in the suitcase as well when you make that trip. And that'll be the difference maker. You know, the teams that end up winning in Pensacola or New Orleans formerly, you know, those are the teams who are able to pack that defense suitcase. And if, you know, if we're, if it's going to be another ugly Sunbelt championship game, like uh, 2015, then, you know, so be it. But in order for Georgia state to get there, you know, I'm not trying to get ahead of my, in order for them to get there, they're going to have to be better for three. Yeah, I think step one is winning a conference. <laughs> I feel like you are getting your, ahead of yourself just a little bit there. Just a hair. Well, and one one thing that I did notice uh, this this past weekend over the past few weekends was it really felt like Georgia State was actually starting to attack more at the rim. And I, I was encouraged to see that. You know, it wasn't as bad against like South Alabama, which really not good. Um, or uh, the Texas Arlington when, the week before that. But I was really encouraged to see Georgia State not just settling for threes. It really did seem like if, when the threes weren't falling, um, they would try to at least move the ball around and still go at the paint, which is good. Like that's the, you know, that is exactly what you want to see when the shot isn't falling because at the end of the day, this is going to be a team that shoots a lot of threes. So that's never going to go away. They're good at it, usually. Um, you know, there's too much talent from Justin Roberts and Corey Allen to, you know, and Nelson Phillips to not be shooting 15, 20, 25 threes a game. 
But while they're not making that, you know, while the percentages are still pretty bad, you still want to see them, you know, feeding guys inside, getting offensive rebounds on those shots and putting them back, cleaning up on the glass, you know, playing the defense like they have been. So, you know, I, I, I know that the, you know, five game losing streak looks bad because it's not good, but I'm still not ready to say that the sky is falling. I mean, you put yourself in a pretty big hole and it's a hole that you've been unfamiliar with. And it's a hole that following past, you know, if past his prologue, the last time you lost four games in a row was the 2015-16 season, which was the last time you didn't finish with a winning record in Sunbelt play. And the last time you lost five games in a row was the last time you had a losing season overall in 2012-2013. And that 2012-2013 team was RJ Honor's freshman year. There was a lot of young guys, and they ended up being a good bit of the core of the team that almost went to the tournament the next season and that went to the tournament and beat Baylor two seasons after. And you look at this team, and it was supposed to be different. It was supposed to be, you've got these seniors coming back, and it's going to be this experienced team. And so I can understand, you know, there is a difference between these teams and sitting here 0-4 in Sunbelt play and saying, well, that team the next year, they end up going, should have gone to the tournament, kind of rings a little hollow because it wasn't supposed to be that type of a rebuild. But there's still 10 games on the schedule. None of them are games you'd look at it and go, oh, George State can't win that game. You're not playing any super daunting opponent. It's just some tough teams on the schedule because the Sunbelt has some okay teams and other ones that you, I think you're going to want another crack at some of these teams that you've lost to because I think you can give them a better shot with the offense. But, you know, it's going to be pretty boring podcast material just to harp on this again and again. But we really can't say anything more than just if the shots aren't falling any more than the percentages they are, then losses are going to keep happening. But if they improve even to just a low level of like shooting 40% a game and clipping up near 30% from three. That would have been the difference in this set of games and in the weeks before. And I think we can see that, like, that's not a high bar to clear. And I think that that is possible, let alone them possibly getting back into the range of the shooting percentages we're used to seeing. Um, But, you know, if I'm honest, this team might be a team that's playing more slow-paced, slow-scoring relying on the defense games and what we've been used to seeing, it's not necessarily going to be team looking to score 80 a game. It just doesn't seem like right now that's the dynamic for this team. But that doesn't mean that they can't start putting wins together. But I do think they're going to have to start shooting at least a little bit better to really give themselves a chance. All right. So before we move on to the next little bit of basketball discussion, we did have a couple of listener questions. Uh, First up from Ethan on Twitter asks, if opponents are hitting 40% of their threes against us, why is the defensive philosophy to continue to back off and protect the rim? They almost get out rebounded every game anyway, and getting a hand in the face feels more helpful than letting anyone take a wide open three. Gentlemen. So I, if I'm understanding the question right, which thank you for the question, Ethan, it's about the circumstances where someone gets open and is setting their feet and getting ready to shoot. And instead of going out to defend the three, there's been a tendency with some of the guards to just kind of hold their ground and get set for a possible rebound, which um, doesn't matter if the shot goes in. And I think that's a little bit of a common college basketball thing. I think the idea... I mean, once their fear set, you're really not going to affect the shot that much 
by jumping out from if you're set up in the paint. And so I don't know that it's like, I don't think there's a philosophy of just leaving guys like the, the goal is not to leave those guys open. But I think the difference between running out there like that and getting a hand up is probably less than we think, because if their feet are set and they already got a good look at the rim and especially if they've already got kind of a flow going in the game. I don't know that it would make that much of a difference, but obviously the times where there've been open shooters like that, that's what you got to clean up because we've seen stretches in these last couple of games where Georgia state's been doing that and preventing good looks at three. And then there's been other stretches in those same games where you've been late on rotations and there've been open looks. And you saw, like I talked about in the last, you know, Delph, obviously got really hot from three and was just feeling himself. The same thing with Vince Cole. Lance Thomas did it for USA. Uh, I just think that what's going to help for them with the three-point is just there's times where they're obviously doing it well and they're getting good contests and not getting in those situations. And there's other times where they're not, and it's, it's going to be about playing a full 40. I mean, I feel like a coach saying that, but... There, it really hasn't been. Georgia State has been bad at three point defense the entire time. It's been half the yeah, half the time they've been good, and the other half they've been pretty bad and giving up some really good looks for the opponents. Yeah, I agree. Uh, there, there is actually a, a semi philosophical reason for that, um, and the reason is when you're trying to recover on a jump shot. If you're not in the position to contest the shot anyways, and you kind of just like lunge forward, you run the risk of fouling because you're not you're your momentum is more pushing you towards the momentum of the shot, which is most people usually shoot a little bit. They'll jump. It's not you're just not just jumping straight up. You kind of jump like forward just ever so slightly. So when you're trying to recover and contest the shot. If you lunge forward, you nine times out of 10 will make contact and coaches would much rather you just let an open shooter be open and, you know, play the cards on their shooting percentages. than you foul a jump shooter, especially who's behind the three point line and give them the three free throws anyway. Um, and like, you know, like Brady mentioned, the the defense has been a lot better at contesting threes anyways. So, you know, that is what you want to see more than necessarily them kind of trying to recover and kind of get back into defensive position if a guy's already open and already shooting. Obviously, you don't want to just let everybody take a billion seconds to line up their shot and just make a practice three, but you know you want to be hitting your rotations before it even gets to that point. Yeah, something like, you know, best three-point shooter going to make 40% of their threes. That's a low percentage than a hundred percent of them getting three free throws. Cause you smack them on the arm. And we had another question from sidelines. Georgia state wants to know how much of this falls on the coaching staff. So like, first off the generic answer, it all does to a degree because it's at the end of the day, it's their job to get the team in positions to win games. And some of that's the cliches, but there is truth to that. Like it is ultimately their job to game plan and, notice where the team's having deficiencies and plan around that rather than lean into it. And so I think it's kind of a weird balancing act because I think that they need to have the, the senior guards get going to have success. The, the least resistance for their path is going to be Corey or Kane or Justin or all of them finding their shot again. And so you're not going to 
go into the huddle and say, you're not allowed to shoot anymore because, you know, you're not making shots because you want them to find that confidence. But I don't think I'd be lying if I'd said there are times where it would have been beneficial in the moment to be like, maybe don't shoot there. But I do think that they've been trying things. I think that they've noticed that Jaheim has been playing really well. And so they've been finding him more minutes. I think that they've in situations where, you know, Jaheim got the final shot against Coastal. And I don't think it wasn't look number one. It wasn't like in the huddle they decided to give Jaheim a look. But they're drawing up plays and looking for action and okay with the ball finding the arms of not one of the guards because I think they recognize that they're in a little bit of a funk right now. And so they're looking for new ways to combat that. And so I think they're trying. And I think you've seen as they've been able to play games, the defense is starting to get back into the the flow that Georgia State wants. And they've also been fouling a lot less. And that's something that has been an issue, even when things have been going well for Georgia State under Coach Thanier. And so it feels like the defense maybe is finding a new groove. It hadn't even been in before in the quote-unquote good times. And so until things get better, the heat on the seat for Coach Nier and company is not going to get any cooler. You know, losing only begets frustration. But I, I just, I don't know. I mean, we are kind of going to have to take stock at the whole, at the end of the season, as it were. But I think at at a certain point, it's going to be about just on-court execution. And I think enough of what's going on is getting guys in the right situations. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know that it's all something you look at and go, the coaches need to be doing a better job. I think that was incredibly well said. Uh, and I agree, you know, if you're kind of asking and looking for us to put on our pitchforks and, you know, light them on fire and say, Coach Lanier's got to go and, you know, there or another. You're not going to find that here. But at the end of the day, because of the structure of basketball and the structure of, you know, the reality of the results is, you know, the coaches have to be better. You know, it's not like we can sit here and say, you know, the coaching staff has done X, Y, Z job. Players need to do X, Y, Z thing. And, you know, it's it's a multifaceted issue. Um and, you know, I, I can be honest, I don't know what this weekend is going to look like in terms of the results. I don't know what the rest of the season is going to look like in terms of results. You know, maybe we can have a conversation about the warmthness of seats at the end of the season when we have the full picture. But I think Brady is also incredibly correct. Like, you know, coming into what this was year three for Coach Lanier at Georgia State, you know, there are specific expectations this you know basketball program and i think after a disappointing first year um but like you know everybody usually gets a mulligan their first year and you know with the impending covid situation it, whatever um i still think you know this team was incredibly close to go into the nc last year and you know those are the expectations so i don't necessarily think that a seat is warm but i could understand people having that sentiment um, I guess to wrap up my answer, you know, I think the results kind of speak for the clubs. You know, we need to go down each individual coach and say, you know, you are at fault for this, this and you know, this and the other third. 
All right, so let's go ahead and jump forward to take a look at this Louisiana road trip. Panthers will play at the Cajuns Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern and at Louisiana Monroe 3 p.m. Saturday afternoon. First up, Louisiana 9-8 and on the year and 4-3 and in the conference, dead in the middle at sixth place. They're coached by the Georgia State Faithful's favorite college basketball coach, Bob Marlin, who is in his 11th year in Lafayette. Jordan Brown is their leading scorer with an even 15 points per game, while Theo Akuba averages nearly a double-double with 11.1 points per game and 9.2 rebounds per game. The Warhawks of ULM are 10-10 this season and 2-6 and in the Sun Belt, two spots above Georgia State in 10th. Their head coach is an alum of the school, Keith Richard, also in his 11th season after previously coaching Louisiana Tech from 1998 to 2007. It's a balanced scoring attack for ULM with five players averaging double digits in points per game and another starting forward, Thomas Howell, scoring nine a game. So, Jen, what do we think about the Louisiana schools? I will say, I don't know if we touched on this last time when we talked about Louisiana, but the rivalry factor has lost a little bit of its luster since Coach Hunter left. Um, Coach Hunter has even been publicly saying nice things about Bob Marlin, um, which I feel like <laughs> wasn't, there weren't always good tidings between the programs when Coach Hunter was here and Coach Marlin and him had a, spats shall we say but it feels weird it like i don't think that it is that different of a landscape because it's still two of the teams that are usually you know in most years near the top of the sunbelt so i feel like there's still that kind of that oomph to it but uh yeah i just wanted to get that off the top that it, it still feels weird that a couple of years on it doesn't feel nearly as much of like oh it's louisiana week yeah, it certainly has lost its luster a little bit. Um, but I also think that it comes with like these two programs are kind of in, I don't want to say different spots, but, you know, like Georgia State was kind of beaten up on Louisiana for a few. I, I you know, looking at there the still records are. now. They won yeah. the last 10. They just lost the last two in Cajun land. Yeah, you know, that's kind of just the reality of the situation. I think if Georgia State was having the conference season that everybody expected them to coming in, you know, this would be, you know, little brother is hosting big brother and, you know, trying to pull off a win for them. Uh, But it's, you know, it's probably going to be a good game series. You know, some guys on one fan base don't like the other and same for the other way. So I don't know. I think, I think most State, of the Georgia State and Austin is directed at one person. I don't think fair. that it's fan base to fan base. I think it's just no one, no one in uh, around these parts is super fond of Bob. That's fair. That's fair. Um, but, you know, like Georgia State probably wants to get these wins back and start climbing out of this hole that they have dug themselves in. So, you know, it would be really important if they uh, pulled off. I, I guess I could call this an upset. So, uh, you know, pulled off that upset in the Cajun Dome, as it were. Yeah, I mean, that's the truth of it. And we've kind of said some version of that the last couple of weeks because it continues to be a thing where Georgia State's digging in a hole. But you lost two at home this past weekend. And so now you're going to have to really win two on the road to feel like you've made progress or you haven't made further regression at the very least. And I think if you look at it, George State hasn't won a game against a Division One team since late November, and so you can't really say better chance of win. Like you don't feel great about a win because it's not just where the team has been mojo wise. But I think that you think Saturday 
is a game that you can win, especially if you play well on Thursday and maybe get a result then. I think neither of the Louisiana teams are gangbusters in the Sun Belt right now. Louisiana started off conference play beating both the Carolina schools on the road, and they did it without a couple of players and their head coach, Bob Marlin, and it felt like, oh, here we go. This is uh, the team that's kind of take control of the conference a little bit, and they've fallen off since then. They're four and three in the conference now, which... Just so, so, so pedestrian. They lost at home against South Alabama this past week. And it's not a, uh, it's not a great they're... four and three. No, like the, it, the three it's losses are bad. Well, <laughs> Georgia State shares two of those opponents, so, and didn't play the other one. Uh, I, I think Texas State's good. I, I don't know what to make of Texas State, and it is a little bit disappointing as far as just not really going to be able to measure up Texas state until possibly playing them in Pensacola, just because they won't be on the schedule the rest of the way. And you lost that game, but yeah, I don't really know what to make of most teams in the Sun Belt, and Louisiana is part of that. And, you know, to be fair, I don't know how many teams in the Sun Belt have any idea what to make of Georgia state right now. Uh, I'm, I think everyone is per- as perplexed as Georgia state fans collectively are about what's just gone on. Cause Georgia State being winless in conference play this far into it is just foreign for what they've been doing. I don't know. I, I think that you've been able to build your defense up. I think that offensively is where you've been struggling. And I think on the balance of things, you'd rather, if you had to say one was going to be deficient, you'd rather it be the offense because at some point you think that you're going to find the shooting. And I think we've been talking ourselves into that for a while as well, but it's still true. Like at some point you think that these guys that have been making shots for you for the last two, three seasons are going to keep doing it, find a way to get their groove back going again. It hasn't happened yet. So that's kind of been a fallacy for now, but I still think that you think, and maybe it's this week, one of them starts getting shots to fall from downtown or starts to get things going on the dribble more and continue to involve the bigs like we saw against coastal. And hopefully you can keep the defense going the way it's been. And like I talked about at the end of that last segment, you know, it really, if you're getting back into the range of shooting, even just 40 to 45% from the floor, which isn't great, you'll be in a better position than what you've been in. And uh, yeah, late ex- late game execution too. Just going to have to make more shots. You got the game, should have been a game winner with Justin Roberts against App. But other than that, in recent times when you've been needing shots down the stretch, especially, you've just, the offense hasn't been good. The shots haven't fallen. And, you know, that's money time, as it were. That's when you got to find your flow. Yeah, you know, they're still good college athletes. They're still good basketball players. They're capable of finding that shot and getting out of the slump. Um, but, you know, the, the the road doesn't exactly get any easier for your drop games. You know, I'm not saying, no, like, I mean, you have to win both. Need to balance out those losses from life. So anything, you know, isn't necessarily great, but you definitely can't lose the ULM game. Goodness. It's not that bad, right? And, you know, I guess the other thing, and this kind of ties into the question about the coaching staff. The other part of it is this is coaches and players. If someone finds it, one of these guards finds it, it's on both coaches to make sure they're drawing up plays for that person and other guys to know who's got the hot hand. 
And so if you've got a situation where, all right, this is the week where Corey's getting shots in. All right, he's been struggling, but if he's making shots in this game, the ball's got to find 11. And so that's something that you can go to. Like The coaches need to be ready on that and be noticing who the offense needs to, to flow through. Um, but other things I noticed, and this kind of ties into the games from the past week, but didn't have a time to mention it in that. I thought Colin Moore played his best game of the year, and he only played about 10 minutes uh, against Coastal, but he had three steals, I believe, in a very short time. Really impactful at the defensive end. Uh, Coach of the Year has talked for a little while when all the injuries are going on that, oh, it'll be nice when Eliel and Colin and Nelson can all be on the floor at the same time. And I don't know many how many minutes collectively those guys have played together. We haven't seen that you know big hell lineup with just defensive effort defensive effort all that much but they have all played more as they've been healthy and you have seen that show up and so i'd be interested to see he hasn't been doing as much at the offensive end i think that's still maybe where he's working in progress but i think you got to keep finding minutes for him you know another buried thing from the coastal game and you know this counts overtime so the numbers are a little bit inflated but Corey played just under 38 minutes and Kane played just over 36 and Evan Johnson wasn't available. So that was a factor, but find more minutes for, you know, Evan, if he's back, get him back in the rotation find more minutes for Colin, get Nelson out there some more minutes because, you know, if you're playing guys that long, certainly you're going to run into a bigger risk of them not having the legs to make some of these shots that you need them to find. And so I think it backed them into the situation they didn't want to with not having Evan available for the rotation against Coastal. But I think it's both a fixing a problem of maybe playing guys a little longer than they need to, and also a solution of when Colin Moore's been playing, if he can play like he did against Coastal, it makes your team better if he's playing more. They need contributions from anybody that they can get right now. So, yeah, I definitely agree. You know, got to find the hot hand and play him, keep playing him. And continue to watch this budding. I don't know if I want to drop the nickname yet or not. Um, no, don't Ellie, do it. You, you got to keep it in the pocket. Keep it, keep it for another pocket. week. Let me just say that LAL Seme, Jaheim Hudson, we talked about it with the Coastal game. They kind of took over the game. Another week of that will be encouraging to see and what Jalen can offer. I mean, we've been waiting for Jalen to make more of the shots, and I think he's been waiting to make more of the shots. I think it's been a frustrating year for him, but. He had been part of that partnership with Elio last year, and I think he can find that again. And he's an enforcer in that he's really good at blocking shots when he's in position and all. And so, you know, maybe continue to build, not just get the two of them involved, but have all three of them where you can say they had a good week defensively. I think if that's the case, Jordan State's going to be in a good position. So let's go ahead and move on to football. We've got a couple items to discuss. Uh, chiefly, Georgia State football staff is full once more. We've got a pair of coaching uh, changes to discuss here. First up, a familiar face filled one of the open slots as former Panthers safety Antrell Allen is the new assistant secondary and safeties coach. Uh, Antrell had been the DBs and special teams coach at Shorter College the last two seasons. Before that, he was an off-field staff member for Georgia State in 2018 and 2019 after playing for the program from 24. 14 to 2017. He joins tight ends coach Dan Ellington as assistant coaches who are also alums of the school. 
Alongside the announcement of this hire, Corey Peoples was promoted to secondary coach. The press release from the school says Peoples will continue to work directly with the cornerbacks while overseeing the entire defensive backfield. But, uh, so uh, what do you guys think? I love the hire. I love, love, love another Georgia State alum coming into the program as a coach. And it follows on the thing they did with Dan, where they also moved Coach Peoples' role to full-on secondary coach. And just like where Dan was, I think, an offensive assistant his first year on staff, where he was coaching with the running backs, but he was getting help um, as it was his first year. You know, not that you know they need a world of help, but it's a situation where you look at it and you go, know, maybe it's someone who jumping from shorter college and pretty young isn't, it's a leap to be a full D1 FBS head coach or uh, assistant coach like this. There's a lot of responsibilities and they're able to, in both cases, have someone help them, shepherd them into it and give them whatever assistance they might need. And then, you know, a year later, Dan was the running backs coach all by himself and expect something similar could happen with Antro after a year and just they're using the opportunity to say, we trust these other coaches to help them. And we want to bring in Georgia state alums that are younger in their coaching career, because we think that they've got it. And they think we think that they're going to continue to grow to be really good coaches. And I just love that. That's where the effort is focused as far as hiring young coaches, because it could have just been, okay, hire this guy. Who's the safeties coach at whatever school peer conference or FCS, whatever, who's got a lot of experience. There would been nothing wrong with that, but it feels like an intentional decision to hire these two alums and huge fan of it. I am too. You know, that's a really good sign of a program that's building and a program that, you know, you, you, when you've got coaches who can identify players as guys who can lend their voice to, you know, coach some younger guys as well. Like you want to keep that matriculation program and, you know, it's not going to be, you always see the big names, the offensive coordinators, the defensive coordinators who, you know, they used to play at this school. Like, you know, they were under this coach as well. And this coach has been there for, you know, 15 years. And you just got a rotating cast of former players as the, coordinators you know i think that's great as well but you know when you've got an opportunity to hire some players especially guys you know that you recruited you know that shows that those relationships are strong those bonds are you know something that'll last forever and you know as long as the results are still there good the everything is great when you were able to put yourself in a position to do that and i feel like george State's cutting in line a little bit in this respect because you know, as we talk about ad nauseum, it's a 12-year-old program. And so you've already got two alums on staff. And alums on staff is a pretty common thing. And it's kind of becoming all the rage, especially with like head coaches coming home to coach their program. Like you see that all across college football. And I think we were all looking forward to the time where Georgia State was going to have alums on staff. And it wouldn't have happened on the normal path of business for another decade or so just because... Usually the way it works is guys are in their, you know, 30s, 40s when they're getting FBS gigs like this, but they're choosing to move along the path earlier. And I, I respect that. And I like that. And it also, just like it said a lot when I think Coach Step was basically the, the other person helping out because he had coached running backs previously. It says a lot with Coach Elliott trusting Coach Peoples to take on the extra responsibility, gives him more to do, makes him feel like he's doing a good job. And so... 
just all around feels like it's a move that helps everyone feel good and including I'm sure Georgia State fans happy to see that uh alma mater Georgia State in the notes in the program and such. Moving on to the second coaching announcement, mere hours before the recording of this podcast, Football Scoop had the news that John Holt has been hired as the offensive line coach to complete the hiring cycle for the Panthers. Holt was a standout offensive lineman for Appalachian State from 2004 to 2007 when Coach Elliott was his position coach. He was a starter on the field when App State pulled off the upset at Michigan in 2007. He spent the 2021 season as offensive coordinator at Dodge City Community College, having coached the offensive line from the 2012 to 2020 seasons at Western Carolina, working alongside former Panthers offensive coordinator Brad Glenn for much of that time. He took over as offensive coordinator as well, after Glenn moved to Atlanta in 2019. Gentlemen, thoughts? Hmm. Okay, so Coach Elliott, former offensive lineman, former offensive lineman coach, hiring somebody else from Western Carolina. I mean, I feel like, you know, we mentioned it just now, but I, I feel like I've seen this one before. Uh, only time will tell us see if this will work out. Yeah, and connection to App State as well. He coached him there, you know. I feel like this is exactly the hire we figured it was going to be something along these lines and should say that it's not official from the school yet although he's on twitter and he's already changed his information to georgia state and is retreating georgia state stuff so it feels pretty official just not 100 percent official um and the, the guys from football scoop got that scoop as their name implies they better well should and uh yeah i the staff is full it's this kind of what we said when we talked about it when the opening was there. I think it was the last pod or the pod before that when we talked about the job opening. Bring in a guy, Coach Elliott Trust, run the offensive line, keep what's been one of the better units for the team, the better units of the team, and no reason to think this won't be exactly that. All right, so before we get you out of here this week, we do have a couple of additional football-related notes. First up, defensive lineman Thomas Gore was named in ESPN's Best College Football Players at Their Positions piece, grading out as the best interior defensive lineman with a 90.2 PFF grade. The sophomore just beat out UGA defensive lineman Devontae Wyatt for the distinction. Also, former Panthers head coach Trent Miles has been hired as an offensive analyst by Brian Kelly at LSU, and linebacker Zach Dixon has entered the transfer portal. So a little bit more uh, football news this week, and of course, we would be remiss to not include sports bits in any episode of the Thursday Night Podcast. So we've got a little bit of stuff going on. We've got Thursday, Friday, and Saturday action here. Thursday today, as of the release of this podcast, we've got men's and women's basketball both playing uh, the women hosting South Alabama in the sports arena at 6 p.m. You can watch that match on ESPN Plus and men's basketball traveling to Louisiana Lafayette for an 8 p.m. tip off on ESPN Plus and WRAS FM 88.5. And then Friday, you've got the H-Town Speed Series in Houston, Texas for track and field. And then men's tennis playing University of South Florida in Peachtree Corners, both of those in the afternoon. And then Saturday, H-Town speed series continues at noon women's basketball hosts troy in the sports arena at 2 p.m on espn plus and men's basketball travels to monroe louisiana at 3 p.m also on espn plus so lots to keep up with this week thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of the thursday night podcast we appreciate you and we hope you have a fantastic week go panthers <laughs>